Everything works together. The more diverse a pasture or a grassland is, the more healthy it is, the more resilient it is to any disturbance that comes at it. So if we can have that diversity, it's going to reduce the inputs needed and your landscape can be more resilient as well. Welcome to the Soil Health Labs podcast, engaging ranchers, farmers, and researchers in the pursuit of healthy functioning soils. Welcome back to another episode in the Soil Health Labs podcast. I am Barrett Self. And I'm Buzz Clute. And today we have an interview that Buzz did with one of our favorite South Dakota NRCS employees, Emily Helms, State Rangeland Management Specialist. Yep. Um, Emily is uh, a very quiet person or when you first get to know her, but she's a fount of knowledge and um we talk about this in the podcast anyway, so I don't want to get carried away. Um, but what do you want to know about uh, the podcast, Barrett? Well, what was the key emphasis here that you and Emily kind of explored in this chat? Well, um, that's a good question. Uh, first of all, uh, it was both me and Joe, so you'll hear a little bit of bantering between the two of us. Uh, but really what Emily and I and Joe got to talk about was number one, um, the threats to rangeland. Uh, So we Mm. go through four threats to the rangeland system that we have. And then we look at a number of the approaches that we use, uh, including prescribed burn and prescribed grazing. Um, We do this in not really a a very formal way, but uh, informally and you know, Emily is just such a knowledgeable individual. So um, the conversation runs really well. And I always, of course, love uh, working with Joe on this. Yeah, well, it's a great dynamic in the field when we're out there with Joe and Emily. So I would imagine that's going to shine through a little bit in this episode. Yeah, yeah. And I think the other thing that Emily just brings out is this whole idea of, uh, you know, one rancher can't do it on uh, their own. Mm. It's really a question about uh, partnerships and organizations. And of course, you've got people like the South Dakota Grasslands Coalition that is an incredible help to range rangeland folks. And then, of course, uh, we also visited um, with the South Dakota Soil Health Coalition. And, and they're also part of that system where we have these networks of people who are knowledgeable who have been down that path and who can help each other. Yeah, that's part of the free resources that we always include in the show notes. There's a lot of that out there, a lot of free help that ranchers and farmers can access. Yeah, yeah. So uh, a lot of this is about trying to get that message out. Well, we're going to get it out right now. Let's shake it out. Let's shake it out. All right, we'll hop out of the way and let you guys enjoy this episode with Emily Holmes. Emily, we're so glad you're with us. Welcome to uh, the Soil Health Labs podcast. I, I have a little bit of brand confusion. I keep on calling it the Growing Resilience podcast, but I believe it's the Soil Health Labs podcast. And Growing Resilience, of course, is one of our projects. So welcome, Emily. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Emily, um, I'm just going to kind of give you my my background of when I got to know you. Um, I think we met in October 2020. And you know, Joe, I don't, you were with me, right? And, and Emily is this quiet, unassuming type of person. And then you take her out into the field and she's like the, the queen of the field. She waxes lyrical. She stops. Oh, look at this. Look at this. You know, so um, we've learned a lot from Emily. And uh, as we got to know Emily a little bit more, she um, she more than holds her own in in our little world, doesn't she? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. She is the silent observer that keeps us in check. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's just great to have her around. Um, and, and like you said, she's not always silent. When you get her in the field and, and she gets on task, um, she t- teaches us a thing or two. 
Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Well, Emily, enough of that flattery and everything else. Can you just give us uh, just a very brief uh, overview of your professional background before we kind of ask you about, um, you know, uh, how you got into this whole thing? Sure. Um, I went to SDSU for a range management degree, so South Dakota State University for a range management degree and agronomy. And then I started with the NRCS in 2012 as a Pathways intern, so kind of like a work during school um, internship. And then um, worked out of Millbank and Brookings and the Brookings Field Support Office. And then I um, got placed in Burke and worked there for about six months as a like a range management intern. Then I went to Haytai, South Dakota, which is the tiniest town in South Dakota, I swear. Just, but, just say that again. What town? Haytai. Haytai. Yep. And worked there have for you, about what? Have you heard of that, Joe? I, I I thought I was had been everywhere in South Dakota, so <laughs> apparently not. So where's Haytai? Sorry. Haytai is um about thirty miles south of Watertown, or thirty five miles northwest of Brookings. Gotcha. Okay. So if you don't have to go there, there's no reason to drive through it kind of a thing. It's a nice little town, though. I love it. It was it was kind of fun to work with. A lot of the producers were great to work with and soil health um, practitioners. So um, and I worked there for two and a half years, and then I got the state rangeland management specialist job out of the Huron office. And I was in Huron for three three years and I just got transferred to the Rapid City office just for, oh, I didn't tell you that. No, <laughs> so wow, congrats. Yes. So, so. And you're still the state rangeland management specialist, are you? Yep, yep, just different office. Okay, so, uh, and tell me the state rangeland management specialist, I mean, what do you, what do you do? I do a lot of things, it seems like, um, I'm in charge of all of the technical information that gets put up like on the websites and um, dealing with grazing lands or range management. And we have like when it comes to providing guidance for farm bill programs, I help with that. Then I also put help put on trainings for new employees and partner employees across the state, as well as helping out helping with outreach events. I work pretty closely with the Grassland Coalition, helping them with their outreach and workshops when I can. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, Joe, do you think she's left something out here in her I, job I description? Mean, I, I think there's a lot more to it than what she said, but she's pretty humble. So pretty she picks humble. up the slack in a lot of different areas. Are, now, are you working with Tance more now that you're, uh, is that is there any connection with Tance Herman? Um, we go to, we tend to do a lot of the same things. So yeah. we're, we kind of follow each other around, it seems like. So it's kind of nice to be on the same side of the state so we can maybe feed off of each other a little more now that. Yeah. I, I was just going to say, I think one of the one of the jobs that you took on when uh, we started working with you was you'd babysit me and Joe and the rest of our film crew. Well, there is that. Yeah. There is yeah. That. <laughs> you, you know, so. back to running in the same circle as Tance, um, I've called South Dakota the the biggest small town uh, in America uh, because it, it feels like anywhere I go and, and especially in the circle that you run with, um, they show up. You know, I was uh, I was in Spearfish. So I've got dogs barking in the background. I was in Spearfish, South Dakota yesterday um, working with the South Dakota Land Ag. Um, I've got the hat in front of me. Land Ag Trust and uh, and your buddy Judge Jessup was there, and um, there was a, a bunch of faces that I had seen and I had filmed, and um, you know, just uh, Jim Falstich was there, um, and and I'm I'm gonna miss the names, but there was a bunch that that I run into often. Uh, it doesn't matter where I am in the state. So um, folks like yourself are so committed to the mission of you know soil health and grassland health that you are gonna go wherever you need to go, uh, you know, to be a part of these 
you know, these workshops and, and uh, presentations and things. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. Pretty cool seeing y'all. I'm glad you got to see Judge. He's always great to see. Yes. Yeah. Well, Emily, um, just to, before we kind of dive into a few other things, what what got you started on your interest in rangeland? Why why did you go to South Dakota State University for rangeland management? What what was it that drove you to do that? Well, I grew up on a ranch, a small ranch um, <clears throat> in western South Dakota, north of Wall, um, and just being out in the landscape got me interested. And then I went in high school. I was in FFA and got involved in rangeland judging and that I always thought that was really cool just knowing all the plants and what how important they were and I got introduced to the NRCS through those outreach events that they put on which I'm now helping with which I think is pretty cool but I went to rangeland days and range camp and excelled at agronomy and range judging in high school so I thought that might be a good career to follow based on that experience in FFA. Yeah, so. so your specialty was more to do with kind of the plants and the, the habitat, and you weren't necessarily sort of interested in, you know, how big a, a cow might be or small or, you know, the weaning weights of calves. Your specialty was more in the grasses and the forbs and the, and the rangeland, is that right? Yeah. Yep. Okay, okay. Well, well, that kind of leads me on to a kind of a follow-up question there, Emily. When you and I first spoke, even prior to uh, we've spoken on the phone, we talked about the threats to rangeland in South Dakota, and I would imagine these are common threats. I was wondering if you could perhaps hold forth a little bit because we, we need to hear it uh, and we need to hear it often. You know, what are those threats to rangeland and uh, how are you seeing progressive ranchers um, showing up and addressing these problems? Um, there's a lot of threats <laughs> to rangelands. Uh, the most, the biggest one we're working on right now, uh, there's a four state effort to combat woody encroachment on rangelands because we're, the Northern Great Plains is one of the last remaining intact grasslands in like the United States and the world. The Sand Hills is one of the biggest, um, landscapes that hasn't been cut up by uh, development or uh, land, land conversion in the whole world. So we have like this awesome opportunity to keep our grasslands intact. So um, South Dakota, Nebraska, Oklahoma and Kansas are kind of partnering to combat woody encroachment. So that includes like cedar trees encroach encroaching on grasslands along with other species that are encroaching because grasslands are supposed to be grass. They're not really supposed to have these woody species. So that's one thing that we're dealing with, especially in the central part of the state is this woody encroachment issue. But if you look around the state, it's happening everywhere. Like the Black Hills trees are encroaching on the grasslands around the Black Hills. And in the north part of the state, we've got um, cedar trees encroaching on grasslands coming out of like windbreaks and that kind of a thing and then across the state we've got russian olives that are taken over as well in all the riparian areas so we've got lots of species that we need to kind of deal with before we don't have any grasslands left then another kind of threat to grasslands is development especially in the black hills area we've seen a lot of rangeland get turned up so we can put houses in which kind of makes me really sad, but there's really nothing we can do about it other than like Joe was working with yesterday, right yesterday. You yeah, it was Johanna Meyer Della Vecchia and her family. Um, they put their uh, they put their land into a permanent um, conservation easement yeah. uh, and and which is amazing. I mean, it's it, you go into spearfish and you just in the middle of spearfish, you turn up a street and it goes up a hill and all of a sudden you're in this world that you you wouldn't know there was any houses around at all. It's a giant, um, you know, there's there's canyons and trees and grasslands and cattle running deer, elk. Um, they've got bear back there, mountain lion. And and uh, there's two streams that run out of it that are feeding Spearfish Canyon. Um, so maintaining that 
land and, and leaving it in its natural state is, is great for water quality. Um, and, and so that's something where a family can decide that, that they're going to put this permanent conservation easement in and no one will ever be able to touch that. And I think that's, you know, that, that's really the only way to do it because I think when, when ranches, farms and ranches are hand, handed down to the next generation, the next generation, at some point, somebody might make the decision that, hey, we're going to parcel this off. There's so much money uh, to be made, especially in areas like Spearfish, that um, it would be hard to say, no, we're not going to, you know, sell part of it to a development. That's millions of dollars. So uh, it really takes, you know, the, the right people. And, and I suppose uh, a bit of education, that's the beauty of what we're doing. We're, we're able to go in there and film these stories and show people that, you know, um, there is a reason to do this and, and it, you know, there's a purpose and, and, um, we're all grateful for what you're doing. So, um, you know, I think, I think that's, that's one way to combat, you know, urban sprawl into these areas that are so necessary for the planet. Right. Yeah, I'd agree. It's something that once it's, it's broken up, it's, we can't ever get that back. That diversity, that soil health, that ecosystem is basically ruined with putting a house on it so yeah so that's yeah. something we're dealing with but it's it's happening across the state but especially around the black hills rapid city spearfish um even down into the hot springs area kind of an issue and then our lot one of the other issues we deal with well i guess is there's two more conversion to cropland especially in the eastern side of the state but it's happening in west river too i've seen so many so many grasslands in western South Dakota get tilled up so that they can plant wheat and corn, and that's it's concerning. <laughs> it's, it's tough, and it's, um, and it's and not good, good cropland. It's only going to keep them going for like ten years, if that, and then we're going to run out of carbon, and then they're going to have to plant it back to grass. And planting grass isn't super easy in western South Dakota. It takes a long time to get that kind of even just back into grass, and we've already lost that that soil health there. And then the last. Uh, sorry, slide. Emily, is is has that been exacerbated by the price of wheat and wheat and corn? I, I I didn't look at the wheat price recently, but I was just shocked at how high it was compared to three or four years ago. Yeah, well, especially like this year is a special case, but um, of course, yeah, crop prices. Some people, um, we have an aging farm and ranch community. A lot of guys are getting older and they don't want to deal with cattle. So it's a lot easier to, you know, plant it in April, harvest it in August, and then go to Arizona in the fall and some winter. So like the AAA club, some people like to call it. And yeah. that it's pretty easy to, to just be a farmer sometimes versus a cattle rancher who needs to deal with animals all year round. So and, that's, and that's there's not, not yeah, the, you, you can't set them aside and, and say, oh, well, you know, I'm not going to water the cattle today, right? <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, sorry. Well, luckily, I think we've got a lot of young guys coming in that realize cattle are the way to get into ranching and production agriculture. So that might be our way if we can empower the younger generations to get into cattle and realize that it's not that bad. It's, it's a lifestyle, but it's rewarding and we get to save the planet by doing it that might yeah. be one way to keep some of this grassland from being turned over as well would, would mike blalett be an example of uh, some some of the younger people coming in yeah mike's yeah. a good example of that yeah 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 what 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 about the fourth threat we've we've had woody encroachment We've had development, we've had conversion to cropland. What's the fourth one? I'm kind of surprised you didn't mention this one first. Oh, well, I guess my fourth one, and I'm gonna, afterwards I'm like, oh, and this one too, but uh, oh. cool season invasive grasses is kind of our last issue. And it's occurring across South Dakota, across the Northern Great Plains. Uh, we've got, we're dealing with Kentucky bluegrass and smooth brome encroaching across the the state there's really no line where it stops like western south dakota is lucky to not have as much of it but uh some people are planting smooth brome for hay and then it kind of gets out of hand and they'll encroach on the nearby rangeland uh, we've planted smooth brome in ditches for years so it's encroached that way 
So anywhere you have a highway or something, you're going to see smooth brome moving out into the into the into the pasture, right into the rangeland. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's just like it's a palatable grass. They both have their seasons of use, but they're not as useful for as long as native grasses like western wheatgrass is our state grass and as long as you get a little shot of rain western wheatgrass is palatable throughout the summer and has good nutrition for cattle and sheep versus smooth brome which is good early in the season and then it kind of goes dormant and it's just washy grass that cows will eat maybe if they're hungry <laughs> so right but but very little nutritive value yeah. Not yeah, not very nutritious, and it has uh, smooth brome and Kentucky bluegrass have really sh short root systems. They're not they're not very deep, so they tend to reduce like soil microbial um, interactions in the soil. Uh, they don't go down very deep, so they can't. They're not very drought tolerant versus some of our other native species that have deep root systems and promote good infiltration of water. So yeah. And, and I know, yeah, and I noticed the, and of course, um, it's crested wheatgrass amongst the, uh, the, yeah. the usual suspects. Yeah. yeah, crested is another one too. Crested and is another one. We do have some cheatgrass, like annual bromes, but they're not as big of an issue for the most part um, versus as you go further west into like uh, Wyoming, Montana, Idaho. But those are, cheatgrass is a lot bigger issue out there, so. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess the one thing about the root system I understand is that, uh, you know, with some of these cool season invasives, is the root system sort of crowds everything else out in the top four inches, and then those other uh, deeper rooting systems just can't take hold. So it's almost like a like a like a, a turf grass in a sense, right? Is, is well, we plant. Kentucky bluegrass in our lawns, so yeah, it is yeah. grass. It's so it is a turf grass. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. And so. can, I learned this like a couple years ago. I read a book. It was called Weeds. So it talked about all these different plants that they, that are like have weed status. But yeah. um, Kentucky bluegrass has evolved with humans over like <clears throat> thousands of years. So it knows how to deal with us and how to how how we work and so it has a low growing point so that we can mow it and we can keep grazing it because cattle kept grazing it in Europe and then it got put over here and they kept grazing it so it's something that I think we're going to have a hard time dealing with but we do have fire on our side like a prescribed burn can help reduce it a little bit okay and and I'm let me ask let me ask a quick question how did the uh how did the drought change things because what i've noticed west river this year is um, there's been a lot of rain everything's really green it's as green as i've ever seen it in western south dakota so did the drought affect those cool seasons um and and maybe open things up for some of the natives to come back or or not i think it depends on the management if somebody was kind of managing away from those cool season species the drought may the drought does like they're gonna shut down during a drought. So we could kind of graze those off, get a opening up for the natives to come in, just like them able to put their leaves out and be photosynthetic. Like that's one way we they've, um, that they can help like promote natives. But I think it depends across the state. <laughs> yeah, sure. What One question or one thought that I had before I forget is, um, you talked about um, Kentucky blue being planted for grasses. And um, I hop in my truck and drive to South Dakota and I, and I share these, I help share these stories. And um, if, it feels like we've put a pretty heavy burden on these farmers and ranchers to maybe save the world, right? Uh, to, to save our grasslands and to do the right things. We, we say things like that. And then I come home and I mow my lawn every week and I have somebody that comes by and puts chemicals on my lawn. And I feel like, uh, you know, as the years go by, I feel like more and more of a hypocrite to, to be trying to preach what what to do, you know, the right thing. And then I come home and I'm not doing it on a small scale. Um, and and I think, you know, working with homeowners in urban areas is is one area that we can really move the needle if we can maybe make a change um, in, in the urban areas. Uh, you know, it, it might not be possible to 
to take on a, a task as big as changing the mindset of the farmers and ranchers that, you know, I, I hope it's a green screen. I can't see anything. Um, but um, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of going on, but you've got the idea. How, yeah. how, do, we, how do we help everybody make a difference? Um, and, and beyond that, you know, uh, you can, I know Buzz is raising his hand. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it's hard to fault a, a rancher that has decided that, you know, to support his, his or her family, um, maybe, you know, putting some crops out there is, is the answer. So um, how do we help them? financially so that you know, they can continue to manage the, the grasslands um, the way that, you know, we hope they would, right? Um, how can you say, don't put crops out, uh, and, but but you're going to lose money because you're not doing it? I, I don't know. You know what I'm saying, right? So yeah. how can we help? I think that's the question we all wanted the answer to. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you if you uh, you listen to Dwayne Beck, I think uh, I did an interview with him in 2013. You know, part of this is a systemic problem: is we are uh, we're paying people to plant cover crops, but we're not paying people to keep a perennial uh, perennial systems in place. And uh, I'm not going to go deeply into that, but uh, if you listen to Dwayne Beck, it's 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 interesting because he's uh, he's not necessarily kind to to the system, but that certainly is the case. I, I wanted to just speak. To, I know I know this is a little bit off point, but going back to your point about uh, in urban systems, there's a fantastic book by a guy called Owen Wormsley called Lawns to Meadows, and it's specifically about converting grasses to to meadow systems. So uses less fertilizer, uses less chemical, less water. And in fact, if you look at the environmental impact of lawns, us city slickers, of the amount of money we spend maintaining our lawns um, and the, the impact of that, it's it's the biggest crop in the United States is, is grass, turf grass. Did you know that, Emily? I believe it makes sense. So, so I think, <laughs> yeah. you know, for those of you city slickers who are listening, we also have our part to play. We can't just leave it up to the farmers and the ranchers to save the world. So that's kind of my two cents worth there. The book is called Lawns to Meadows by Owen Wormsley. It's it's a really, really good read and it's super practical. So, yeah. um, but, but anyway. The thing we're doing in South Dakota and across the nation is every state is getting an urban conservationist. So hopefully we can start working with that. Once they get hired, we haven't um, announced that yet. Like who, we haven't put the position out to be filled, but um, hopefully that could be something where we can work with local people to maybe plant more native species in, in yeah. landscaping, you know, for the pollinator and talk about buffalo gra grass lawns a little bit more, even though they're not as green as our Kentucky bluegrass or fescue lawns, but they you don't have to mow them as often. Some people don't like to mow. Yeah. That's an option. Well, some people like to some people like to brag about how much they mow. Anyway, we're getting off topic over here. <laughs> <laughs> I, like I, I want to circle back. You know, we've talked about woody encroachment. We've talked about um, urban development. We've talked about um, uh, cropland conversion. And then the fourth thing is invasive species. I wonder if we could circle back just to uh, some of the ideas on woody encroachment and what you've seen ranchers doing, I know you talked about that four state thing, what are we doing? Because the B word, the burn word is, is often kind of a, a dirty word, but it, it is a tool. It's a tool like cows are a tool. And if the tool is used irresponsibly, you have, you, you have the potential for a poor outcome. But I have seen really, really excellent professional use of that tool and i wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about that and how the ranchers are managing uh, to free up more land for grass rather than having it choked out with woody encroachment um, so the the mid missouri river prescribed burn association was formed i don't know how many years ago it's not that old of an association but there it's a group of ranchers that recognized the problem and wanted to combat it with with fire basically so they um are working towards 
doing big prescribed burns on these areas to combat the woody encroachment along the um, in the south central part of the state. And they're using the models that Nebraska and Kansas, they all have prescribed burn associations as well. And so it's like a farmer helping farmer type of an organization where if you want to burn, you have to go help somebody else burn first before they're able to burn. And um, this year it's been, it was so dry. And last year, uh, just because of COVID and all of that, like they haven't really been able to burn the past couple of years. So um, it's kind of like not going as they had hoped, but it's still new and they're still working towards getting more burns on the ground. But that's one way they're working to combat the issue is um, putting these landowner groups together so that um, they can start working on it at least. Um, and then we've, we've spent, and I think the United States um, or just NRCS in general, we put a lot of money into brush management. So that's just like cutting the trees off because cedar trees and juniper trees, they don't re-sprout. So you can just chop them off and either pile them up and burn them or just leave them there. And in some parts of the, the country, you can just leave a tree there and it disintegrates really fast, which blows my mind. But apparently that happens. Um, but for the most part, people, they put them in piles and then they'll burn those small piles versus the big landscape. But once you cut that tree down, it somehow releases all of the little seedlings. So instead of one tree there, you've got a thousand trees. So it's kind of one of those things we, we need to do multiple ways of managing the trees, not just um, just saying like, oh, you can just burn it. You might need to do some cutting and then burning or another tool that we're starting to use is goats in that part of the world. So goats will graze the trees. They love the bark. They'll like strip all of the bark off and um, that will kill the tree as well. They take enough bark off. So there's a couple different tools out there to help reduce the issue. Well, I'd never heard of goats uh, with a cedar tree. I, I know they, uh, they they were great in poison ivy. I think Janita Quelm told me. So so you talked about the Mid-Missouri River Association, um, and of course we visited them quite a bit as well. Uh, but I was wondering, um, what about the James River? So are there any efforts afoot um, in, in the James River Valley area? Yeah, we're, we're working on it. Um, the SDSU, and uh, start, we're trying to figure out how to get a, an agreement going where we can develop a James, like a Southern James River Prescribed Burn Association. It's still in like the, the baby, baby stages. So, but we've got some interested landowners. It's just finding ones that want to kind of lead the charge is what, what we're yeah, yeah. still working on. It sounds like it needs a little bit of incentive, but you know, uh, the the Mid Missouri River Association really kind of had the feel of a, a of a grassroots movement, didn't it? Yeah, it was started, and Dave Stephan uh, passed away last year. I think he was the one of the main people that started the Mid Missouri, along with the Grimms. They saw that issue and they kind of helped. And there was a few others, um, Tom Christensen, I think, was one, and. Doug Feltman, who we had on the videos as well, like they. they Rod Voss. Rod Voss. Rod Voss was involved quite a bit, wasn't he? Yes, Rod Voss. Um, I, I think he was involved. I'm not sure. I think he was involved. I I don't know the whole story, but Rod is very involved now with the Prescriber yeah. Association. He goes to all the meetings and stays keeps up to date. And, um, he's been he's been a great asset to them as well. Um, he's one of our area range management specialists. And very knowledgeable. He's been with the NRC yes. for a few years. Yeah, yeah. And Sean, uh, and extension person who yep, is yep. involved as well. He's also a great asset to them. Yeah, it's interesting that Sean's not only a you know he's a rancher himself, um, and uh, he's on the Missouri Fire Association, but he's also a uh, active in the local fire. Uh, the, the local fire department. So yeah. he really has a lot of tools in his tool belt. Uh, uh, as an extension agent, which is really kind of cool. Yeah. I, Emily, I, so we talked about the Jim River, the Mid-Missouri. You had spoken to me about Ponderosa Pine out in, in the West, especially in the hilly regions. Is that correct? 
And is something happening out there? Or is Ponderosa Pine still sort of a problem that's that's um, that really needs to be addressed? I think we're addressing it in small areas. It's not. It's probably not as big of an issue for some people as the Mid Missouri and the James River Valley are. Gotcha. Gotcha. It's definitely I think something to be aware of before it becomes an issue. Like I think we still have time to maybe cut some trees down, <laughs> but yeah, yes. We'd like to briefly interrupt this episode for a short announcement. Over the past couple months, we've put in a lot of work to revamp our website, growingresiliencesd.com. It is now completely updated and live. On the website, you'll find all of our podcasts listed, as well as our video content and blog content. In addition to that, we also include links to resources from our sponsors. So for any farmers and ranchers out there in South Dakota and the Midwest as a whole, if you need any of these free resources, please check us out at growingresiliencesd.com. And now, back to the episode. We've, we haven't really talked about easements, and this might, I don't know how many ranchers know about easements. So let's kind of, um, in terms of, you know, if, if we have this unbearable temptation to sell our land, um, especially, you know, as folks uh, approach, you know, my age or a little bit older, um, what, what, how do easements work? Tell us a little bit more about those. Uh, I'm not an easement specialist, so I'll probably get something wrong. <laughs> I've I've had a little bit of familiarity, so we'll we'll work on it together. But between the three of us, we probably can puzzle it together, right? Yeah, and there's a few different types of easements that you can you can have. It depends on the type and who you're going through. Like we NRCS has easement programs where you uh, can basically sell your rights to developing or tilling up the ground. Um, and it can be for 30 years or perpetual, which means forever. So you, um, and most of our easements are wetland reserve easements. So it's basically restoring a wetland that maybe was ditched or was farmed. So then you have to restore that wetland and then you sell your rights to ever developing or farming that again. But you can graze it with a compatible use authorization or put food plots on it, use it for hunting, that kind of a thing. Uh, we also, Fish and Wildlife Service also has easements where there's like wetland easements where you can't do certain things to wetlands, like burn them during the year unless you get authorization. But those can be put on cropland where you can still crop, you just can't crop those um, wetlands. And they also have grass grassland easements where um, it just keeps those acres from ever being tilled up and you can graze it how you want after that. Um, and then the other easement, there's also like these conservation easements that Joe was talking about where you sell your rights. And and it can be very specific or it can be somewhat general as to you just say that this land can never be broke up or this land can never be developed. It just depends. Some people put easements on cropland so that they'll never be developed by a housing um, development or something like that. Like that's something that I think they want to do around Sioux Falls because a lot of the really good cropland is getting developed by houses and shopping malls too. So, in the case of Johanna, um, they didn't sell any rights. That was just that was a donation that they made. Oh, um, and and one benefit of that is they have full control of everything related to that easement. In other words, you know, they get the lawyers together and they say, this is how we want to do things. And, and and so they don't have outside interest coming in and saying, this is how you manage. So there's more control in a case like that, obviously, but um, I don't know that everybody is in the position to say, you know, here, take thousands of acres here and put, the, put it into a conservation easement, um, you know, and we're never going to sell it. So um, that takes a, it, it, that takes a special person, not not just a special person, but it also takes, you know, having the means to be able to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, certainly that if if they're in that position, they're very good. My my understanding of an easement, and correct me if I'm wrong, is by um by 
um, putting an easement in and saying, okay, this land is not going to be, we don't want this land to be plowed up for the next 30 years or the next, you know, in perpetuity, essentially uh, what you're what you're doing is you're quote unquote reducing the value of your land you know for resale and so you are being rewarded for that by whoever is providing the easement money um so that's that's my understanding and, and you know a lot of a lot of guys have been able to uh, do fairly well out of those easements and hopefully invest that money so that that land can get taken care of in the future but yeah. is that does that make sense? I mean, that's that's kind of how you see it, right? That you're being rewarded for foregoing the value of being able to either develop or or, or plow it up. Right, with like the federal easements, but like Joe said, the conservation easements through the Ag Land Trust are a little different, but in a good way. Like, you don't have yeah. to have someone yeah. tell you how to manage it. You're just making sure that Correct. Those, yeah. those lands are kept the way you want them for years to come right yeah and i think going to a land trust or going to some of the the nrcs or their partners and investigating e easements might be a real important uh, tool in your toolbox so well let, let's let, let's circle back to that other one of uh, conversion to cropland emily um in terms of some of your progressive ranchers they've been able to avoid having to plow up because they have, you know, they've increased the productivity and profitability of their land. Would you be able to give us a few examples of guys who are really doing well and, and some of the some of the principles they're using to just, you know, stay ahead of the game and produce calves for, you know, much lower prices and, and you know, improve their habitat all the time? There's tons Pretty of them. South Dakota, so it's hard to like say this one and this one, but you know, like uh, Joe talked about, Jim Falstick is a great example of he's kept it in grass for his like ranching period, you know, and has great habitat. He's got a hunting business on his land as well, and he he understands like grazing management, the the right things to do at the right times. And I think part of it is just <clears throat> he's very observant of his land and 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 can understand like when he needs to move his cattle and how long he should stay in a pasture so it doesn't get overutilized and um, those types of things. Um, yeah, so he's I mean, that's, you know, there are a lot of guys wrote. Well, I guess the same thing with Larry Wagner, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, He's got a lot of row crop land around him, yet he's stayed afloat. And I guess, you know, what they've got in common is this whole idea of adaptive grazing, right? Yes. Making the most, you know, keeping their animals on a very, very small proportion of the land and then, um, you know, moving them and moving them often so that, that they basically rotate, rest, recover, right? <laughs> if they keep those those important words happening on their landscape, like resting their land as much as possible, as well as letting it recover and rotating through the pastures is with proper utilization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, can you give us an example, West River, maybe somebody we've never heard of who's really kind of taken off with adaptive grazing management? I don't know, Joe. Well, I, I, all of the RMAs and grassland stories that we do over there, they're everywhere. You know, um, the Blairs have a, a beautiful ranch and, and two different areas and, you know, lots of native species. Um, Robert Boyle, and we worked with him last year. Um, just there's, there's, there's a lot of people that are coming into this and helping to repair areas that were tilled you know it's really hard to point out just one but right. everywhere we stop there's somebody doing a, a you know a great thing with their management or with you know bringing things back to the way that they used to be as much as possible so um right. yeah there's just an army of them over uh, on west river and and east river as well you mentioned yeah. michael blalad you know there's a really great example of a young guy that worked for pheasants forever and like a lot of people that do this work, Emily, you know, all of a sudden they end up ranching themselves. They, they get, you know, they, they're inspired and they're, they, they decide that they want to give it a go. And, you know, 
uh, we were just at Michael's a uh, week and a half ago, and uh, it's just amazing what what he's doing out there, you know, in an area that was, you know, pretty beat up. So it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess the other guy who comes to mind is someone like Jim Capriva. We met him the first time in October 2020, but haven't really got back to him. So I think I need to talk to him. But uh, just FYI, if you go to the South Dakota Grasslands uh, Association website, uh, coalition website, you'll see that Jim Capriva is one of the mentors on economics of farming and ranching. So, you know, he's got his head on straight. And Buzz? Let, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, um, sdgrass.org is the South Dakota Grasslands Coalition website. Yeah. And I don't know if that's what so, you're talking about going through that. But, correct, um, sdgrass.org. Yeah, yes. so that's the South Dakota Grasslands Coalition, right? Um, if yes. you've never been on it, if, you, if you're in South Dakota, you've probably been living under a rock if you've never been there or, or never heard of it. But uh, it's an amazing thing. Uh, the other question I have, do we have a map of South Dakota uh, producers uh, that have been on the Amazing Grasslands video? Is like, does who, who's got that map? Where can we find it? We have a map in the Grassland Planner. Yeah. So, so is that map available electronically, um, Emily, or is it just in the hard copy of the Grassland Planner? That's a good question. I don't know. I know, like the you can also. View the grassland planner on the South Dakota NRCS website as a PDF, so it's available in PDF format as well. Um, gotcha. And that's available if you click on like on the front page of the South Dakota NRCS website. There's a range and drought information link, and you click on that, and then you go all the way to the bottom, and we have the most recent planner there. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I, I've seen a lot of dots there, so you guys are correct. I mean. Um, I think it speaks to some of the land ethic that we have in South Dakota ranchers and farmers. And I'm not saying other states don't have that. I, I just think um, you guys have done a really great job of capturing that. And so that's 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 pretty awesome. Um, yeah, South Dakota, Emily, South Dakota excels, excels at this. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I, I just right, noticed right. that there are, there, are, there are 70 Our Amazing Grassland videos on the YouTube website. Um, so that's back to that. Can you mention a name or two of somebody that's doing, you know, really stellar work? There's 70 right here and we've just scratched the surface. So really, uh, you know, if you just drive down the road, you can point at that ranch and that ranch, they're everywhere, you know? And yeah. We, yeah. we have a list of people we want to do amazing grassland videos every year we go through. And there's a lot of guys who don't want to have a video done about yeah. them because they're so humble and they, yes. they don't think they're doing a great job, but they are. And it's like, you guys, we mean, we, we want you to, to talk about your story. And they're like, oh, no. So there's there's probably like, I don't know how many ranches there are in South Dakota, but a lot, most of them are have good land ethics. So and all of them do. It's just there's various levels of that kind of land ethic. So. It's such a challenging thing to try to have the best soil health too. And even the videos that we've done, the producers that we've worked with, it seems like every one of them says, well, you know, don't look over there or don't film there because this isn't working or this didn't work. And they're constantly trying to <clears throat> adjust and adapt to, you know, what mother nature throws at them. You know, they, they try to make the changes and they're looking at what others are doing and they try it on their ranch and and it's different it's different every it can be different two miles away as far as what's successful and what's not you know it's it's context and and it's it's also just uh, adapting to to the changes that are happening and and you know they call them mistakes but it's not a mistake it's just you know well i, th I think you know sd grasslands is really good about saying you know guys Please share your mistakes with us so that we don't make your your mistakes right. as well, right? That's definitely yeah. it. Like Pat Guptill or Bart Carmichael, they always say that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Well, well, Emily, um, I've kind of overrun my time. We've spoken to Tance quite a little bit about you know the various approaches to managing cool season grasses. So we'll spare you the. Um, the, the complexity of that, because we know that there are different approaches. But 
uh, I wanted you to speak about why rangeland is important, why diversity is important in South Dakota. What's what, why, what, what's that got to do with anyone in South Dakota? Not, not only the rancher, but you know the, the, the folks that make their living of agriculture directly or indirectly. Because it is, because I said so. How about that? Oh, well, there. That's good enough for me. You heard it, folks? <laughs> That's good enough for me. Emily said so, end of podcast. <laughs> Bye-bye, Emily. Bye-bye, Joe. <laughs> well, like diversity, we preach it. Uh, June is a diversity month like we have so many different months that that are celebrating diversity in our, our social lives so why not have diversity in our landscapes as well you know and everything works together the more diverse a uh, pasture or grassland is the more healthy it is the more resilient it is to any disturbance that comes at it if we have uh, a mono culture of Crested wheatgrass, smooth brown Kentucky bluegrass, or even just our croplands or monocultures, they're not as healthy. They need more inputs in order for them to be productive for us and to help us have a better product. So if we can have that diversity, it's going to re reduce the inputs needed and it'll reduce our bottom lines for producers. And I think a lot of people think cows just eat grass, but they, they also eat those flowers, those forbs, they eat shrubs, they eat parts of leaves off the of trees, even though we're told that they're poisonous. Like if there's diversity in our landscape, those cows will be a lot more healthy as well. And you won't have to put as many inputs into them to keep them healthy, like pouring them for bugs or having to give them some kind of shot to reduce some illness that they might get. So that diversity, it not only plays into the health of the landscape, but the health of the animals on the landscape, which then relates to we're eating those animals after they're produced and that a healthy animal is healthier for us as well because they're going to be more nutrient dense. So diversity isn't just like this pretty picture on the wall. It, it relates back to our health as well. So having that diverse landscape is important for everyone and diversity i don't know you could go on and on about how important it is a diverse landscape is going to have better water infiltration so you're going to have not as much flooding and that impacts people downstream if you don't have flooding upstream you're not going to have flooding downstream and your house isn't going to get swept away in a big flood you know or you have a better water cycle so that you're like in a drought situation you'll have some storage happening so your your landscape can be more resilient as well so let me ask you this how many plants what's the most amount of plants that you've seen on a pasture walk how many plants have you counted D different species we we were on the bluebell ranch a few years ago i don't remember it was like 2016 leopold winter there and leopold then, and and this is this is east river by the way east river yeah leopold. east river yep. south dakota in the middle of cropland country yeah there was over a thousand species or 100 species i think over 100 oh. species in just a small yeah. pasture it was like beautiful so every one of those species has a different time when it's going to peak from a nutrition standpoint whether it's it's different time of the year, it's got a different root architecture, it's got a different architecture above ground, and uh, it's they're all connected below ground through the uh, through mycorrhizal fungi. So it's it's an amazing community that we're still trying to wrap our arms around. So that's that's really exciting. But Joe and Emily, are there things that we've neglected to talk about today? Um, certainly, we can carry on and on, but. What else do do you think we need to talk about uh, before we we sign off over here? I, I think one thing that is really important to touch on one last time is the importance of consumers uh, really helping out and driving this movement. You know, without uh, the help of the people in the cities that are buying the products that these farmers and ranchers are are growing and creating, um, we're really not going to be able to make big changes. And if we want to keep ranchers on their ranch and not turning their ranches into farms, we have to find a way to support them financially. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'll be with Gabe Brown on Monday going into General Mills and he's speaking to the executives. Those are, are opportunities to make big impacts. You know, if you can have a company like General Mills um, reach out to their consumers and help them understand 
you know, why we need to make changes and that it might cost a little bit more, but in the end, it's going to cost less because of healthcare and because of, you know, our environment and the air we breathe and the water we drink, um, it, it's worthwhile. So I, I think that that can be really big impact. And that's all you could have 10 more podcasts where we're just talking about that. But that's the thing that I think about all the time, you know. Yeah, yeah. Emily, last word from you. I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> Give us some hope, Emily, because <laughs> this is, yeah, yeah, no, I, you know, it was Colette Kessler and I were talking about uh, a convention or a workshop that she went to in Colorado where they were talking about the state of um, grasslands and they're saying within 10 years we, it, we could, it could be gone. You know, what we have could be gone. There's so much encroachment and so much urban sprawl. And, and um, so it's, it's, it's kind of uh, depressing when you think about it, but um, are you hopeful? Are you, uh, do you think that, that uh, you know, we can make a difference? I, I think that there's a lot of people on our side. We have this huge, I, I want to say coalition, but it's all of these different partners coming together to have a single goal, especially like the um, Central Grasslands Roadmap. Like there's yep, tons I was of just looking at it. involved with that. It's, it's amazing to see how... You know, and people that you wouldn't think would be associated with each other are coming together for one problem. So there, there is a lot of hope when we see a lot of different groups like that bringing what they have to the table and and saying, okay, now how can we help? That's that's pretty awesome. So that's grasslandsroadmap.org. Yeah, is a website yeah. to go to the Central Grasslands Roadmap. And we'll try and put that in the show notes as well. But Emily, I think I think you've capped it off so well. And Joe, thank you for asking that question about hope because we need hope. And we've got these little islands of hope, you know, dotted across the South Dakota uh, uh, um, landscape. And so I'm, I'm so grateful. I, I'm profoundly grateful to be part of that, uh, even if it's just sort of the messenger boy. I, I, I'm, I'm just so excited to be that. So um, Emily, uh, Emily Helms, it's been such a pleasure talking to you as always on the Soil Health Labs podcast. Joe, thanks as always uh, for being my foil and, and thinking for me when I forget to, to ask my questions. Yeah. Thanks, Emily. All right. Thanks, Buzz. Thank you. Very Thank you. We're signing off now. Well, Buzz, there was a big emphasis on hope at the end of that episode. And speaking of which, I was actually talking to your daughter and her husband about flooding and drought in Dallas. And it seemed such a parallel to what's always going on in South Dakota. And the idea of your livelihood being so dependent on the weather that is so extreme, it can be tough to have hope at times. Oh, absolutely. Well, if you think about the droughts and the floods we've had just in the last 10 to 15 years, it's absolutely amazing in South Dakota. So, you know, that's the whole where the whole idea of resilience comes in. But again, you know, Emily talks about these partnerships and, you know, Emily is an optimistic kind of person and she shares that optimism and she works with it. But it, again, all of this comes with partnerships and mindsets. Mm. Okay, well, we've got another episode coming up with uh, one of our favorite characters, one of maybe the top soil health characters out there. Yeah, Ray Archuleta. Um, I've been privileged to have him as a friend since 2010, um, and uh, we got hold of him. He's a pretty busy guy, but we got hold of him, and we're going to be speaking to Ray Archuleta next about soil health in general, but also as it applies to uh, rangeland and grazing. Uh, when was the last time you saw Ray in person? Oh my goodness, I think it might have. I think it might have been when you and I were coming back from South Dakota, no we visited way. him in spring. That was spring like five field. years ago. Yeah, it was a long time ago. Ray and I talk a lot, but um, I don't think I've seen him in person since then. Hmm. Well, I'm sure you guys had a, uh, a lively discussion here. Well, you'll, next you'll have to hang on and see what we talked about. Yeah. 
So check out the show notes as always for free resources. Uh, don't forget to remember what, Buzz? To remember the R's. Rotate, rest, and recover. And recover. Buzz need a little bit of recovery time before this episode. <laughs> speaking, of, speaking of which. Uh, but anyway, uh, we'll close this one out. I am Bear itself. And it's not about me, Buzz Clute. <laughs> Keep it resilient. Keep it resilient. <laughs>